Uh, but today we're going to be in a phenomenally awesome, crazy, heavy passage of scripture. So go to Acts chapter 11 and open your Bibles and stand with me. I'll read the text and we'll see what the sermon is. Acts chapter 11, starting with verse 19. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this seemingly uh, just almost insignificant basic passage, I pray you would help us to see this is probably the most significant passage in the book of Acts. I pray, Father, we would understand how important it is, how important it is to trust that you are doing something even now in our midst. And Father, I pray for those that don't know you today that they would recognize that you brought them here, that they would be saved. They would turn to the cross and recognize what was done in their behalf. And for those that know these truths, I pray that you would make us so resilient, so bold, so excited about this next chapter, this story that you're writing through us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so I have to retread some of the ground from last week to understand the significance of this passage. The book of Acts is a challenging book for many people. First of all, the Gospels, Acts, and the rest narrative, essentially, in the New Testament, these narrative books can be challenging because, first of all, you have a million cults that misuse them, right? We have very clear epistles that are like written to the church that tells us very basic things, but there's always some cult somewhere that says, we go two by two because he said to do that in, in Luke. And I'm like, yeah, but then he, they came back. And then he said, you know, so like there's a narrative, right? Well, in Acts, there's a narrative too. The book of Acts is a transitional book. And it's essentially a transitional book that tries to take us. And if you can, if you can remember and go back for a second, I addressed this last week, but you got to feel it again, okay? The book of Acts is challenging because we today are here on this Sunday morning in San Diego, California, worshiping a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish Savior. We're talking about Jewish prophecies and, and all the way through, and here we are, and I don't see any yarmulkes in here, really. I don't see many of us here with prayer shawls or whatnot. We are all Gentiles sitting here worshiping a Jewish Messiah. How did that happen? And there's two basic there's two basic narratives we can put forth. The first narrative is, man, God wanted it to happen, the entire Old Testament, that everyone would just worship him all around the world, and those pesky Jewish people just didn't know what to do, and they just didn't want to give the gospel forth, and, and they didn't want to share the good news. Or, what we actually see in Scripture is that there was a message, there was a message to a people, and it was a particular message, and that message was exactly to the Jews, and about the Jews, and about Israel, and about these things, and then all of a sudden... And this is the key, it changed. 
And it's that change that the book of Acts is tracing. And we have to ask ourselves a few questions going into it. Why do we need to know this? I mean, we could just say, well, it's obscure history or it's just an interesting fact, but there's very many reasons we need to know it. But before we get to that, let me just establish some of what I just said. So go back to Matthew chapter 10 for a moment, Matthew chapter 10. And again, I, I covered this a little bit last week, but it's, this is really a continuation of last week's message. In Matthew chapter 10, notice this is in the gospels now. And, I, and the reason I bring this up and being narrative is in the gospels, Jesus speaking and notice what happens. It says, and he called to him the 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, and he names them all, right? And we even have Simon, and we have Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him in verse 4. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that first statement here that Jesus says sounds certainly very limiting. In other words, the idea was that they would be prone to go out to everybody. That would be the natural inclination they'd have is to go forth with this good news as apostles to go help everyone they see. But Jesus like, don't go to those places. Go only to the house of Israel. And I told you before, but this is what I mentioned last week, but Matthew 15, we see something similar. And again, this is Jesus' own picture of his mission. But if you look at Matthew 15, 21, it says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. I, I kind of skipped over this a little bit. This woman is crying out to Jesus, and he ignores her. Jesus. And I know I'm not trying to... I guess what I want to do is I want you to read what the text says, and I want you to see the Jesus that's actually real, not the actor that they picked on The Chosen or, or Jim Caviezel or something else, the Jesus that's real, that's here, that challenges us a little bit to see what's going on, okay? So here's Jesus ignoring this woman. That's absurd. What in the world? And so finally, the disciples are like, send her away. She's crying out after us, and he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why I can't talk to you. I wasn't sent to you. I have a mission and it's to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the, to the dogs. And this word is little dog. He's not saying you're a dog, but, it, but he's like, but in regards, still not nice. <laughs> and she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered, a woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed immediately. This woman understood that Jesus' mission wasn't to her. And she's like, I don't care. I'll take the scraps. And Jesus is like, wow, great is your faith. Where does, if what I'm about to tell you is challenging for you, I have to ask you, where does the things I just told you fit into your theology? In other words, we can't ignore it. Clearly, there's something that happens. So if you look at this, the gospel wasn't always to the Gentiles. It wasn't always to people like us that represent the ends of the earth. But all of a sudden, it, it is. All of a sudden, it was. And so last week, if you go to Acts chapter 11, we covered this. And I talked about this being the pivotal moment that we see. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Peter recounts what happened in our passage last week. Notice what he says in 11.1. He says, now the apostles and the brothers who were out Judea, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. What? That's the whole story. Like, wait, wait, Gentiles did? Didn't Jesus, the, the, the Jesus that said it's only for the lost tribe of Israel, all of a sudden Gentiles who are not part of that have received the word of God? What's going on? 
And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's the people that were Jewish, who, who really felt that this new faith of Jesus is a Jewish faith, they, uh, uh, they criticized Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And again, this is uh, scandalous because Peter wasn't supposed to do this. It was against the Jewish law to do this. They were supposed to remain separated. And so what they're asking him is not a, this is not a question of racism. This is a question of, of fidelity to the, the promises of God. And so Peter answers, basically, he began and explained it to them in order and essentially says, well, God told me, God changed everything. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for I uh, for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. Now, just as an FYI, I think it's hilarious. One of the shorts that went out, the video shorts from the sermon last week was of me talking about food laws. There, got, there was more people upset that I said that you can eat bacon and shrimp than you can imagine. Like, I mean, so mad, so much ignorance. One person's like, God didn't say we can eat cl- those foods that are clean. He was just talking about people. I'm like, well, no, he's talking about food and people, but he's talking about food. Uh, and then it's all throughout the Bible, like Romans and Corinthians, like the rest. I'm like, are you, are you absurd? Like all the weird culty people came out. I just thought it was like literally the most viral video we had was me telling you that you can eat bacon and shrimp. So I'm like, all right, let me, what other thing can I say that's really basic? Um, but, uh, Anyway, so this happens, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrive at the house, which were sent from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So when God says, these, I declare these things clean, what I was pointing out last week is, he hadn't done this before. He, he didn't say to Peter, when Peter says, nothing common or unclean come from me, he didn't say, oh, silly Peter, don't you know those food laws? You've misinterpreted them. They're, you could eat all these things. You just misinterpreted or those were just unhealthy things, but there's healthier options or, or whatever it was. He says to him, no, 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 I've declared them clean now, which goes back to this picture that they used to point, that the food laws pointed to an arbitrary, not arbitrary, but a, a settled distinction that God said saying, this is the line of demarcation that, that, that shows the world that you're my people. And it was based on how you're going to eat and how you're going to dress, essentially. That's, that's what it's going to be. And now... God's telling Peter, hey, remember I said that you're going to wear and eat this certain stuff? I'm changing it. I'm just saying that you can eat all these things. By the way, there's some people and you need to go with them. Whoa. So he goes with those people and the, the, um, the spirit told me to go with him. He's basically telling the, his, the, the apostles, God told me to do it, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. We entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and said, say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He'll declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So essentially what Peter says is the reason I ate with these people is that God, first of all, showed me a vision. Then he told me to go. Then he told them to tell me to come to go. And then when I was starting to speak and the Holy Spirit himself fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. Ipso facto, who are you apostles to stand in his way? Either something just changed. So when they heard these things, they fell silent. They had to be like, um, all right, that's kind of big. That's a big thing. Huh? They fell silent. And then they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance. that leads to life. This verse 18, their statement is a picture of them acknowledging the change that just happened. 
The Gentiles who were outside the promises and the rest all of a sudden now are part of this gospel promise. Now, that's wonderful news, okay? And I mentioned before, this looks like that's the pivotal moment where everything changes. And I, it was so hard to preach that and not talk about this week's sermon because this is the one that was really, this is my favorite. And when I think about Acts, I think of this text that we're in right now today. You're like, what? I'm like, yes. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but let me explain. Last week, I mentioned to you that the picture that is painted to us by Luke is of Peter opening the door of faith to the Gentiles in this moment with Cornelius. It is a transactional picture of, the, of something changing. Amen? We can all see that. But I would argue that that's not totally accurate. In fact, a, a, a phenomenal commentator named Gooding says it this way. He says, we've already heard in great detail how Peter officially opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and how, it, um, and how in his visit to Cornelius, God deliberately raised and settled the questions about the holiness that were involved. But as far as Acts tells us, the first great outflow of the gospel to the Gentiles and the establishment of the first predominantly Gentile church were not led by Peter or by any of the apostles. Nor was it initiated or therefore thereafter controlled by the church at Jerusalem. Now think about what I'm saying. This is truly remarkable. And the more we think about it, the more remarkable it becomes. All right? This is something altogether new. Not the planting in Antioch of a Christian Jewish synagogue to which Gentiles might be admitted on becoming Jews, but the planting of a community in which Jewish believers and Gentile believers met on equal terms, so new that a new name, Christians, was invented to apply to the members of this community. Let me say this again. The normal evolution of things would seem to be that, that the, the apostles hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, they're messengers of the gospel, and they understand the scope of it getting larger and larger, and that you see that the Jewish uh, apostles start to evangelize Gentiles, and you see Gentiles come into a Jewish synagogue-like faith, that is not what happened. That is not what happened at all. In fact, the apostles had nothing to do with it. Jerusalem has nothing to do with it. And here's the weirdest part of all. It's after, it's after we're told that Peter and the apostles learned that the gospel was going to the Gentiles that we turn to our passage, which tells us, oh, by the way, God already brought it to the Gentiles way before this. What? Look at our passage and let's see. Let me just make sure you don't miss this. In other words, the turning point in Acts happened behind the scenes without the apostles in a worldly Gentile city named Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It is a city known for its depravity. It is a dark city. It is a city on the cusp of the east and the west and the, and the Mediterranean. It is a city that is uh, a trade city. I mean, it was, it's a, a turning point of these things about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. But the question we have to ask you is, why does Luke do it like this to us? Why does he show it this way to us? What are we supposed to see with all of it? Like, why this complexity? Why am I telling you this? Why should you care on this, this Sunday morning? Well, let me say it to you this way in the most plain way possible. I want you to understand that the church is meant to be seen as something totally new, not a continuation of what happened before, but something new. It's not about Israel. It's not about Judaism. And it's not about Jerusalem. It's something new. It's a brand new chapter in God's saving work had truly begun. And it happened in the background. What do I mean? Let's look at our passage. The first point of the passage is this, all right? Verse 19, 19 to 21. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Verse 19 is the key to all of it. Luke is giving us a, one of his famous meanwhile statements. He's saying meanwhile, but, in, but instead of saying meanwhile, while Peter's doing this, this is what was happening on the side. He's saying, hey, remember that story that happened all the way back in Acts chapter seven about Stephen? Remember that? Remember that one? You're like, yeah, remember Paul was ravaging. Remember that story? Yeah. 
back then the Gentile church was planted. Just, so here's what I want you to understand. Luke's, Luke's trying to get you to see this. After telling us the door of the Gentiles is open, the normal storyteller would say, and then they went to the Gentiles, right? I mean, most commentators even say they're like, and then they went to the Gentiles, but that's not true. That's not the way Luke tells it. What Luke is doing right here is he's narrating to us that, hey, all this stuff happened. By the way, God already did it. Behind the scenes, when you weren't paying attention, he says, now these were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, and they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they spoke the word of no one except Jews, as would be normal. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, this is not just um, Greek-speaking Jews. This is Greek-speaking non-Jews. It's a different word than used earlier when it talks about Hellenists. This is about Gentiles. <clears throat> Now, keep in mind, not only do we know it's that, but also earlier in the sentence, he says, they spoke to no one except Jews, but there are some of them that went and spoke to Gentiles, not, not other, other Jews. That wouldn't make sense either. So this is a picture of the gospel being given to Gentiles also, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, if you stopped right there, you might think, well, those guys are rogue agents taking the gospel and going to people that they shouldn't go to, right? I mean, you could say that. I mean, that's, that would be rogue. They just didn't know. It was ignorant, Right. And yet verse 21 tells us, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is a scandalous section. And I just don't know how to make you feel that enough. So I'm going to do my best to stay on it for a minute, linger there until you start to feel the scandal. Go back to Acts chapter seven. This is what we're referring to right now. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen gives a sermon. Now, who's Stephen? Stephen was a guy who uh, was a, a Greek-speaking Jew who was helping um, in some of the problems that happened earlier in Acts chapter 5. And so him and Philip were some of the guys appointed to help deal with the, the widows and, that were in Jerusalem and the problem with the, you know, feeding the widows and whatnot. And so Stephen ends up having a, a, a really great ministry and speaking, and people were hearing him speak, and they wanted to hear him speak. And he gives this the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And, and Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts is really long. He essentially recounts the history of Israel and recounts the unbelief of Israel. And I want you to understand that Stephen's sermon, I would argue, is, the, is Luke depicting to us the formal moment when God is presenting to the nation of Israel, the nation that had officially crucified her Messiah, offering this nation salvation. And in the sermon, notice how he ends with this kind of rebuke, as he can tell. He says, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Just in case you missed how sassy he's being, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he's basically saying to them, this is a rebuke. This is a prophetic moment of them saying, you guys, you guys blew it bad over and over again. He'd offer him salvation through it. But then he does this. When they heard these things, now when they heard these things, what they did not do was this. They did not say, oh dear, I need to repent. Oh goodness, I'm guilty. I need a savior. No, they did what? They basically did what the, the Pharisees did. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Yeah, like just, that's mad. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice 
and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So here's people grinding their teeth going, no, and going, so they could throw stones at him and kill him. I mean, that's the picture, all right? And meanwhile, we're given a depiction that sort of almost reenacts the crucifixion of Christ, but in this case with Stephen. He sees Jesus standing up, kind of cheering him on. And then we see as they cast him out of the city and they stoned him, that means they throw rocks at him until he dies, right? And as a witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, we'll get to in a minute. And as they were stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, similar to what Jesus did on the cross, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, just like Jesus says on the cross, Father, Father, forgive them, they do not know not what they do. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And then we're told in chapter eight, so, so I would argue that this is a picture of the nation of Israel, they're kind of their final message to them and their, their final rejection nationally of this message. And we see something crazy happens. This guy, this opponent named Saul, who's really against Stephen, comes on the scene. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. There arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And, and this, is, this is one of the key things. They were scattered except the apostles. Now, Stop and take that sentence now. And this is where Acts becomes so fascinating to me. Keep your finger on this. They were scattered because of the apostles. And then everyone else, um, verse four says, now when those who were scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down the city of Samaria. We're told that the people that went out preaching the word all the way in chapter 11. So we don't, Luke doesn't tell us till chapter 11. It's not like he forgets. Luke's not like, I forgot about that super important thing <laughs> earlier. He waits, he holds it back. There's a dramatic reveal happening in our passage right now. That's, that's what I'm trying to get to. He holds back the idea that in our passage, so we've got two places to look. In our passage, what did we just say? Verse 19, now those who were scattered because the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Normal. But there were some of them crazy men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Gentiles, basically preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. And they increased in number. This happened all the way back in Acts chapter seven and eight that we see. Now, what we'd also notice in that passage is that it says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So I want you to understand kind of the, if you can look at the way that Luke's drawing this picture up, each sermon was given to the, the was very Jewish, talked to the nation of Israel, talked to them, crucifying Jesus, gave them opportunity to repent, but they kept not doing it, hardening their hearts. And so the, the powers that be finally reject it. And I would say, you know, Israel rejected the gospel. Stephen confronts them, offers salvation anyways. Israel rejects it still. And so God, we're going to see, moves on to a radically new chapter and he uses the persecution to do it. Now, why this persecution? I would argue, if you remember where it says the apostles stayed, like, again, verse eight, chapter eight, verse one or two, verse one, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Why did the apostles stay? You could say, because this is the center of God's work. We have to stay. We have to stay in Jerusalem because it's the center of God's kingdom work. That's their thought. Does that make sense? That's, that's the best thought you can come up with. Everyone else was scattered because of persecution, but the apostles were brave. They, they stuck it out. We're going to stick it out here and not leave. All right. That's cool. But if you go all the way back to Acts chapter one, they should have left. I would argue that the whole reason for the persecution in the first place is that they didn't leave, but that's neither here nor there. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, this is Jesus' command that starts the book of Acts. He says this, Jesus, the risen Christ talking to the apostles says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
Well, that's exciting. What did the apostles think? Let's just stay in Jerusalem. <laughs> and so, they, so I, what are we seeing in chapter 11? If we get to chapter 11, we see the apostles in Jerusalem learning that God is going to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they're like, then to the Gentiles, the gospel has come. And then you go to chapter 11, the later in the chapter 11, you realize God's like, yeah, to the Gentiles, the gospel's come. That happened like back in chapter seven. There's a, we're meant to see that what happened, this church in Antioch, this Gentile church in Antioch, the, the first New Testament church in the Bible, truly, that is Jew and Gentile, the, the church that is like this church, the first one that in the, in the, was planted by unnamed, ordinary people, not apostles, unnamed, ordinary people, not apostles, not under the, the, the missionary work of the organizing group in Jerusalem, not under the strategy, the missionary strategy of the Jerusalem church. It happened from scattered saints, ordinary people like us preaching the gospel as they went forth. And we're told that God's hand was with them and bless his church. God was doing something in the background. God did it. And so again, why make this sharp distinction? Why should it matter to us? Now, let me give you some tiny bit of theology here so we understand what happens. Paul tells us in Romans 11, and I'm gonna, there's a few parts in this sermon where I have to read larger sections of scripture, but that's okay. We're, we, we love Jesus. We want to hear what God's word has to say. Romans 11, listen to what Paul says. Why does it matter that we see this sharp distinction? This sharp distinction. Here's what Paul says in Romans 11. He says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What he's saying is, Paul's like, what happened to Israel? Didn't God make promises? And this is so key because in Romans 9, he basically says, the picture of God's sovereign work is pictured in him picking Israel. The picture of God's sovereign work and salvation was that he chose Israel, not because they're awesome, but because they're stiff-necked as a way to demonstrate his, his grace, his free unmerited grace. And so Israel's a picture of that. So the question you have to ask yourself is, well, then why doesn't Israel have salvation right now? Why is Israel an unbelieving nation that doesn't believe in, in, in Jesus? They don't, they don't like their Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus. Why is that true? How is that possible? And then you get to chapter 11, he says, has God rejected his people, the ones that he elected? That's the question that Paul's asking. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Hey, it's moving on to Gentiles. There's, a, there's, a, there's something going on here. And Paul says, well, I'm an Israelite, right? God rejected his people. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew because I'm, I'm part of this new thing. Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? He says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, a remnant of, of Israel, essentially, is what he's saying, chosen by grace. That's, that's in the church in some way. What I'm going to get to right now is what he's saying is, I gotta, I'm going to break some sacred cows, all right, right now. Like, there, if someone's a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian or a black Christian or a white Christian, they're just called a Christian, all right? So there's no Jewish church and, 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 and Gentile church. There's just a church. And what Paul's saying is that an Israelite, the remnant of the Israelites are part of the church. This church is something else and they're part of it. That's an interesting thing, something new. And he goes, but so at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, verse five, but verse six, but if it is by grace, it's no longer the base of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Well, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, give them, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In other words, we're told that Israel somehow was caused to or allowed to or planned to reject their Messiah. This wasn't a surprise to God. He knew they would do it. In fact, he planned the whole thing because that was how we were going to get salvation. In fact, he goes on and says, so I asked, do they stumble in order that they might fall? The entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, like literally, think about this for a second. From Genesis chapter 11, essentially, 11 and 12, where you get to Abraham, all the way up to Acts chapter 10, the story is about Israel. And all of a sudden, it's not. All of a sudden, nope, it's about something totally new. Not a continuation of this, something totally new and different. And when this, this sharp line of demarcation that we see that Luke's trying to show us is supposed to shock you for a second. Paul's dealing with this theologically. He's like, well, what's the deal? Right? He goes, the reason for their fall is this, through their trespass is that salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So God basically moves on from the stoning of Stephen and brings the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? When he says their full inclusion, he does not mean Jews being part of the thing. He's talking about Israel, the ones that, he, that rejected it, so it would go to the Gentiles. Do you all see that? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So in other words, one of the things that the church is doing is making anyone that looks at the promises in the Old Testament and sees us worshiping, God wants to make those people jealous. If you're a Jew today following Judaism, trying to follow the, the law, you can't go to a temple because it's, there's a mosque on that temple. You can't go to a place and do those things. You can have rabbis tell you all these made up things, but you can't practice the faith that you see in the Old Testament accurately at all. It's impossible to do so. How do you offer the sacrifices? Half the Bible is all Leviticus. How do you, what do you do with Leviticus? Um, I don't know. We like bread. Like, what do you do? You, you can't do it. You can't have no altar. You have no altar, but he goes. And so all of a sudden there's this new thing called the church. He wants them to be jealous of this new thing. And he says, well, okay. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy. So the whole, uh, so is the whole lump. And if the roots holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot Gentiles, us were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. What does that mean? The church made up of Jew and Gentile cannot look back at the nation of Israel and be like, huh, God doesn't care about you. It was never about you. It was always about us. That's not what it was at all. That's not the message. You wouldn't know that though, hearing some Christians today speak. He says, if, you're, if you are arrogant, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because they're unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So did, do not become proud, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In other words, you, us Christians are here because God chose and worked and, and grace is what brought us to faith. So don't be arrogant towards Israel. Like the nation of Israel right now is a not a believing nation. Those are, that is not, that is an unbelieving nation. They need the gospel just as much as Hamas needs the gospel. They, they need Jesus. All right, that, but there's a nation of people that don't believe in Jesus right now right? And that God had made all these promises to. And some Christians say, well, no, no, no. That was really about us the whole time, spiritually fulfilled in us. And, and, and Paul's like, what are you talking about? What are you, don't, don't be like that, right? He says, um, he goes, if you were cut off why was nat uh, nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature and a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
Let me just say this, as an aside, what Paul's getting to is, don't miss this, God may have turned away all of a sudden from dealing with the geopolitical nation of Israel, but it doesn't mean he's done with them. In fact, he says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, 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 and he is in this way, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion, banished ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I mean, these are big verses here, right? I mean, this is a, a big section. Because as regard the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God said and made promises to Abraham and his people about land and blessings and promise, those things are irrevocable. He's going to fulfill them. Just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now receive mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In other words, the reason that the nation of Israel doesn't have an altar, the reason that they, they are without the ability to worship God is that God is not working through Israel right now. And God's like, that's fine. One day, though, he will, and they will turn back, and they'll receive him in Zechariah, we're told, is a son of whom they pierced. After Paul talks about this, though, he says this in verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's saying like, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and to him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul just breaks out into praise saying, God's plan, the reason we are here is because Israel rejected. But don't be arrogant. God will go back and work with them in the future. But for today, for today, that's not what he's doing. Why does this matter to us in our passage? Why does it matter that Luke shows this in our passage, this sharp line? The rest of the, the, rest of the gospel, what you're going to see is that Jerusalem's going to fade from view. None of the churches in Revelation are Jerusalem. <laughs> right? Jerusalem's going to fade from view, and Antioch is going to be the main church that we see you know, doing everything. <clears throat> but why should it matter to us? It should matter because the church is not Israel. We're something different. And we're meant to see that difference. We are something different than the geopolitics of an earthly kingdom. You know, for, like I mentioned, from Genesis 11 till now, till the stoning of Stephen, God was telling his story through the context of this nation of people called Israel. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's not about Israel. And so Paul reminds us that God's going to turn and deal with them again. But for now, all of a sudden, it wasn't about them. And so what does that mean? It was, it's no longer about social systems and social justice and elections and states and politics and reforming society, which all those things you saw when you dealt with a geopolitical nation. It's about something called the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations. That's, that's the picture. We have a new commandment. And so when people merge the, the, the language of Israel with the church, they, they start to make the gospel about something that it's not. The gospel is something bigger and of a different paradigm than we see in the Old Testament. In other words, God was focused on something else, the Great Commission to make disciples. Now, here's the thing. Disciples towards this new thing called Christianity, not Judaism, which leads to my next point. This is one of the, my favorite points in this. Again, Luke is a dramatic writer, and he tells us in verse 22, after this crazy story. It says the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So this church in Jerusalem had already heard now from Peter. They're already ready for the message. So God is in one sense, Peter opened the door to the Jews to understand that the door was open to the Gentiles. Maybe you could say it that way, but the report has came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So Barnabas is not an apostle. He's just a guy. He's naming sons of son of encouragement. 
He's from that area, right? From the Cyprus and Cyrene, that area is where he's from. He was a native of that area. And so people he knew um, had spread the, spread the word probably in Antioch. That's one of the reasons he went. But he also understood this guy Barnabas, the scandal of grace. Notice it says that um, they sent Barnabas to Antioch and when he came and saw the grace of God, this, this reference, this is the first time the word grace of God is in reference purely to the uh, uh, to salvation in this way. It's what this, like the, the most overt picture. It says, when he saw the grace of God among these, these, Jew, these Gentile Christians, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And we're told he was a good man. This reminds us that Barnabas wasn't like wrong here. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So again, God planted it. Barnabas goes, he legitimizes it. And we're told that God's behind that also. And it says a great many people were added to the Lord. So then what happens? Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why? What a crazy thing. <clears throat> hey, this is neat. God's doing the same with the Gentiles. Cool. I'll see you later. And he goes, Barnabas is a connector. He's one of the heroes in the Bible. He's a connector. He's like, wait a second. These Gentiles here, that reminds me of a guy I know. A guy I know who he talked to named Paul or Saul, however you want to say it, right? So as he goes, he uh, realizes there's a, there's a guy that he needs to go to. So he goes to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, some people say this is, uh, was a derogatory term from the outside. I haven't actually found evidence of this. That regardless, the name Christian means little Christ. But the fact that Luke tells us that they're called Christians is to distinguish them from Jews and from Judaism. So prior to this time, people just would see this as a sect of Judaism. But for the first time ever, they have a brand new identity and it's in Antioch at this church that that happens. This is truly the first Christian church in the Bible. It's the first Christian church of Antioch. So you know when you go to cities like the first Baptist church, second Baptist church, third Baptist church, this is the first Christian church. Like first Christian church of, first Baptist church of the world. That's what it was, okay? But when he, when he knows about this guy named Saul, if you remember... Right? If you remember in, in um, Acts chapter 9, when, when, Saul, when, when Paul gets saved, God tells him, I want you, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Look at that really quickly. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. So he sees Christ on the road to Damascus. He's a persecutor of the church. But the Lord says to him, go to, he's telling Ananias, go for this guy. Paul's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so this, God had a, think about this. This happens right after the stoning of Stephen. And so what does God do? He picks someone new, not from the apostles. In fact, a persecutor. He does something totally new in picking Paul to send him to the Gentiles. This whole mission to the Gentiles was not an outgrowth of the message of Peter and the apostles. It, it's not, it wasn't an outgrowth. They were just continuing to do what they were doing. This is something brand new, a new chapter that happens after the stoning and, and God himself finds a guy to lead it. And that guy becomes friends with Barnabas. We see in verse um, 26, he goes to Jerusalem. No one likes him there because they're not sure about him. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him. They didn't believe he's a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who'd spoke to him, so on and so forth. He goes in and out preaching boldly. And people liked him all of a sudden. Barnabas was the connector. Now, what's interesting is, do you think Barnabas and Paul were friends? Of, 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 they absolutely were. And so 
of course, Barnabas knows Saul's mission to the Gentiles. Saul had to talk about it all the time. And so all of a sudden, he hears about this crazy thing, these Gentile, Christian, these Gentile people called Christians down there worshiping the Jewish Messiah. And so he goes, I know the guy I got to talk to, the guy that God out of nowhere called. And so he goes and gets them. What's the lesson here, right? What's the lesson? Remember Ephesians 2? Go to Ephesians 2 really quick. Let me just quickly run through this because this is the lesson. The gospel like, uh, did this, okay? But we didn't understand it yet. This, I read this last week. This is, this is so key, right? Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, so what do you think he's teaching to this church? After talking about God's grace and saving us, he says this. When he says they taught for a year. Well, here's what I think he taught. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you can almost imagine that you're the Antioch church right now. Here's Paul reading to you. He says this, here's Paul preaching right now. So that's what's happening. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. In other words, the thing that stood between Jew and Gen- the thing that stood between the Jew and Gentile was the law and the holiness requirements of the law. And what happened is Jesus broke those down by showing that in Christ we become holy, not through the law. What Paul's dealing with is what we're going to talk about is that Jesus represents essentially the end of Judaism. This is a, what I just said should shock you. It's that Jesus represents the end of Judaism, the, the, the fulfillment of it. That's, we can get to that in a minute. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then he goes on, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. What he's saying, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into, this, into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, this word mystery is a word for secret. And what Paul's saying is, what I'm going to tell you is revelation from God, and the Old Testament didn't spell this out. And this divine secret is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. In other words, what Paul's saying, God was going to do something new all along, and he chose me to be the guy to tell everybody about that new thing that he was doing, right? To me, though I'm very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Again, in the universe, it's God's classroom. God is the teacher. The angels are the students, and the church is the illustration of God's grace of Jew and Gentile. He goes, this was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering 
for you, which is your glory. Something new happened in this moment in Antioch, right? Again, it's where they were first called Christians. And all at once, it wasn't about Judaism. This wasn't a Jewish synagogue to which Gentiles might be admitted on becoming Jews, but a church in which Jewish believers and Gentile believers met on equal terms so that a new name, Christians, was invented to apply to it. Something brand new. So the question is, why, does, why should this matter to us? Two, two big things. This is where it gets phenomenally interesting. Why should this matter to us? Ephesians, if you go on to chapter 4, look at verse 17. So remember, now it's like Jew and Gentile, we're all in, right? Okay, cool. Then he goes, now this I say and testify in the Lord to this church that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. What? (laughs) Aren't they Gentiles? No, they're Christians. Paul, there's something crazy happened. All right. You have Jew and Gentile. Okay. And that was the distinction because the Jew represented the believer, right? Does that make sense? And the Gentile represented the unbelieving world. That was the, that was the categories we had. All of a sudden you have a whole new category called Christian. And that new category is distinguished from being Gentile. It's not only saying like you Gentiles, we're not a Gentile faith. We're, we are a Christian faith, something totally new, not pagan. And so he even refers to this church and, and distinguishes them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, our identity is no longer Gentiles. We are called Christians. And that's one thing that's amazing, right? But here's the thing. We're also not called Jews. Because if you go on a little bit further, right, to Galatians, and I just got to go quick here, but I just, you have to see it. What I want you to see is that in our passage, a very hard break just happened. Galatians 1, look at what Paul says, and we're, we're doing great. Galatians 1, verse 11. Listen to what Paul says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. So that gospel he just told us about didn't come through an evolution of understanding through the apostles. It was revelation from God himself. And he goes, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him, preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul's not, again, Paul's not saying Gentiles were part of his ministry. God called Paul forth in order to preach the gospel to a brand new people who never were supposed to hear it until now. He goes, I didn't meet. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And we'll, We'll get into that timing of this a little bit later. But what Paul's saying is, I wasn't validated by them. This is from God. I didn't come from the apostles. I'm part of something new. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem and I visited Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person, the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only here, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. This is a description of what's going to happen in our next paragraph, when they bring aid to the church. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, this is the revelation we're going to see about Agabus in just a second, okay? I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I wasn't running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though. He was a Greek. What Paul's saying is we went to Jerusalem and we did not try to ingratiate ourselves into Judaism. 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped and despite our freedom we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What he's saying is the gospel means that we're no longer, as Christians, we're no longer Gentiles and we're also no longer Jews. And he said, I'm not going to let any bit of the Jewish faith that you have to do in order to be holy to come in and impact the gospel in any way. So by the way, what does this have to do with this? Let me just say this really clearly. We'll get into it in Acts chapter 15. If you have friends and your messianic friend who's a Christian, who's a Jewish Christian who wears the yarmulke, that's fine. They can do that. But when they tell you, hey, we're going to have a cedar at my house. You need to come practice it. Like, if you want to go because you want, you can. But as soon as they say, well, this is the... This is the real way we worship God. Paul says, I didn't yield in submission them even for one second so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Something changed. All of a sudden, it's not about Israel. All of a sudden, it's not about Judaism. He goes on. He goes in from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Talking about the apostles. <laughs> on the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So what Paul's saying is Peter has a gospel. I have a gospel of people that we're reaching. He says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In other words, the Jerusalem church is going to say, hey, we're going to go keep reaching Jewish Christians, Jews for Christ, and you just go reach everyone. And Paul's like, okay. But when Cephas and Peter came to Antioch, so Peter comes down to Antioch, and listen to this here, he says, I opposed him to his face. (laughs) What? (laughs) For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Remember Peter with Cornelius? Peter's like, yeah, I got it. But when they came, these, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter goes back and is like, well, these Jewish people don't like the Gentiles. Maybe I'll just hang out with them. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are justified by faith. And he goes on. And he talks about this. Look at chapter four, just so you don't miss what's saying. When I tell you a hard break has happened. In chapter four, verse eight, Paul says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come, now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, why would you go back to the festivals? Why would you go back to the rituals? You have Christ. And I'm afraid that by coming to you and seeing you want to go back to Judaism, I might have labored over you in vain. He's talking to Gentiles that are tempted to go to Judaism. He goes on and he says in chapter, uh, same chapter, look at verse 21. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? So all those people on the, the, the Facebook and the people that watch the videos is like, oh, we need to go back to the food laws. I'm like, really? So are you going to keep the law again? How's that going? For it's written that Abraham had two sons and he talks about the law and, 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 and the faith. And he talks about it in verse 28, you brothers are children of, of, of promise. And he goes on. But just at that time, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free. He's saying cast out essentially the, the ritual purity of Judaism. It has no part in Christianity. Something changed dramatically. 
Not of evolution, but something changed dramatically. He says it, and he goes a little further. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, what he means, if you accept any part of Judaism as a means to become righteous, Christ is of no advantage to you. You can't just add it to the gospel. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Guys, this is why I'm so mean and hard on those Christian-ish religions that talk about Christ and preach that you need to keep the law to be saved. Because it's an either-or scenario. Either you have to keep the law or you don't. But if Christ is who Christ is, you don't keep the law because Christ filled the law and we are in Christ and holy because of that. That's the distinction. That's what happened. And so here's this church in Antioch and everyone's just now reeling and trying to figure out what it is. And, and, and long story short, it's a hard break, right? So it's a hard break. So there's a new dividing wall, not just between Christian and Gentile, but Christian and Judaism and Jew. Christian is the new identity. That is what it means. And so when someone says, I'm not a Christian, I'm a fulfilled Jew. Well, then I don't know what, what promise you're part of. Let me go on. There's a little bit more. This last section of our passage doesn't seem like it fits. It doesn't seem like it goes anywhere. All of a sudden we get this guy, Agabus, come in. Goes to Antioch from Jerusalem. He's like, hey, there's gonna be a famine. All right, what's that I have to do? Is that a separate sermon? I should maybe, maybe I should have waited and done that separately. But the key is not that. It says, verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his abilities to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Two things I wanna point out. First of all, this new church in Antioch had elders. I mean, this church is <laughs> awesome. Secondly, the Antioch church, and this is what Luke just did. He showed behind the scenes, before everything you were worked on, God planted a church by unnamed people, not apostles. He sent a guy who wasn't part of the apostles, who used to be a persecutor. He converts him, sends him to teach them the gospel of grace. And then what happens? We find out that the Jerusalem church is now the poor church. And the church in Antioch is the wealthy church. And they're the ones that send aid to the poor brothers in Jerusalem. The roles just switched. There's a new church in town and the Antioch church is the main church from here on out. It is the hub. If you go to chapter 13, you'll see that it's the Antioch church that sends out all Paul and all the missionary journeys that you see. All the churches that you see planted in the New Testament are sent out by Antioch. That's the mission sending church in the New Testament. All those verses in Acts, you can see. It's the Antioch church that does it. Antioch became the new hub, right? There's a new, a new, a new, a new a power, sorry, a new hub of ministry. And we're going to see Jerusalem fade from view. And then in 80, 70, it's destroyed. And so this new hub is God's doing something new. And that's kind of the key here. A new chapter had begun seemingly out of nowhere where Antioch all of a sudden ascends to this main place. And Antioch, again, is a, is a city like San Diego. It's not a religious city. It's a, it's a city full of like wealth and, and prosperity and darkness and poverty and immorality. And, and it's a Gentile city, a port city, a city that goes to the end of the world, a city like this. And so I love it when people are like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to be faithful to the gospel. I got to move to Texas. If you move to Texas because it's money, fine. But like, guys, the, the center of Christ's work going forward in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament rather, planted all the churches was planted in a city like this. I love that. I love that. Antioch became the mission-sending church in the New Testament. So why should this matter to us? Go to Matthew chapter 16. Remember I talked about the keys of the kingdom in Peter, and that's true. Peter is important, and it's important in understanding to the Jews, opening the door, how the Jews need to understand that the Gentiles are part of this new faith. But Jesus says something to Peter in this passage that I think is relevant to us today. He says in chapter 16, verse 13, he says, he comes in, this is the whole scene where he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says that you're the Christ, 
Son of the living God, verse 16. And in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed to you that I'm the Christ, but my Father in heaven is the one who did it. And on this rock, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, what, what's this rock he's talking about? This rock of revelation that God revealed to you, Peter, doofus. I mean, that's what we see, that I'm the Christ. This is how I'm going to build my church. There's people like you realizing that I'm the Christ. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, I want to make a, a key point. Your Bible, if you look at the book of Acts, what does it say? Look at the beginning of Acts. Maybe it says it. How many of you have in your Bible, it says the Acts of the Apostles. You see that? The Acts of the Apostles. Is that what your Bible's titled that? That's a false title. That's not written by a, the Apostles. That's just someone commentator writing it down to you. It's the Acts of the Apostles. I would argue what Luke is showing us is that this book that we're reading is not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Father, the Acts of the Son, the Acts of the Holy Spirit to do His work all the way through. It's not about the Acts of the Apostles. It wasn't through Peter that this church was planted. It wasn't through the Apostles. It wasn't through the mission strategy of Jerusalem. It wasn't through their organizational plan. All right? It was the Acts of the Father, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, to, the Acts of the Son to build His church. Never forget how He did it, Christian. And this is what matters to you. It was unnamed, ordinary people, not through organizational structures, but going out and just preaching the gospel, going out of, who, out of nowhere, starts something new. And we're reminded, remember, that the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the new chapter. That's where we're at today. And so you ask yourself, well, okay, what, what do I do with that? I love this. This is the last verse we're going to look at. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Remember after that whole thing I read in Ephesians, Paul talking to the church and telling about how God did this, Jew and Gentile, and look what he did. He has this fun little statement that I had to read past last week, but I just want to linger on it as we end. He goes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and, ground, rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Last week I told you, look at what God's done and just worship him. But there's this next little statement. We're going to move on to this application today. Look at verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, what he's telling us here is that God is good. The same God that did all this amazing stuff through unnamed people is still doing amazing stuff through unnamed ordinary people. Far more abundantly than we ask. That's, that's the idea that far more abundantly than we ask or think. And it's according to the power at work with us, unnamed people. Well, let me ask you a question. Listen, God's still working and still building his church right now. The, the new chapter of where we're at, I'm so excited. But let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for to be part of it? Are you waiting for a title? God already gave you a title called Christian. Are you waiting for uh, uh, maybe a, a, a commission, something to do? Someone's like, well, someone tell me what to do. Well, he already told you what to do. Go make disciples of all nations. Right? We already know what to do. So the question is, what's holding you back? What, one of the most phenomenally amazing things is this. I'm excited because of what God has been doing, that we are part of this chapter. And this next chapter, as we go to this new facility, there's a lot more seats and a lot more things. That's not me doing it. It's all y'all, all of us together. The question is, there's no question God's doing, but the question is, are you going to be a part of it? 
Are you going to be a part of it? The invitation for unnamed ordinary people to be used by God in a profound way is right here in our passage. Let me pray. God, as we think about this passage about the first Christian church in Antioch, help us to realize that we are, we are qualified by nature of being in Christ to do your work. I pray you would send us out as your lights in the darkness. You would help us understand what it means to be a Christian, that we would never go back to pagan Gentileness and we would never go back to legalistic Judaism, but we would understand we have a new identity in you and we preach a freedom that only exists in you. I pray for those who don't know you today, God, that for the first time ever, they might hear your Holy Spirit work through them and hear the gospel and be saved, that they would recognize that you sent a savior for lost people who would take their place on the cross. And when they believe in his work and they put their trust in his finished work, they can be saved. I pray that people in this very room right now would would be regenerated and hear that and, and respond. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would help us to be bold, recognize that you are working. We don't need to wait for titles. We don't need to wait for someone to tell us to do it. We can go start Bible studies in our homes. We can go out and talk to our coworkers. We can invite people to church. We can go to the parks. We can go to the highways and the byways and tell people about Christ, just like that early church did. This is the mission strategy. This is the mission sending church that changed the world. And we're a part of it, God. Help us to remember that in Jesus' name. Amen.